On a list of the top 20 most catastrophic career-killing albums, The Cure's Wild Mood Swings is probably top five. It's up there with like Duran Duran's Liberty and The Happy Monday's Yes Please. This album is a train wreck. I would rather listen to Agadoo than most of the shit on this record. It's that bad. And it's not something like Lou Reed's Metal Machine music, right? This isn't some defiant departure from expectations, right? Giving the finger to the fans and the critics. This is Robert Smith upending his waistband in the middle of your living room, wearing a shit-eating grin. Over the years, Smith continues to defend this record, much as he defended the top from its many detractors. I mean, his stance has softened somewhat, especially in recent interviews, right, surrounding this double album picture disc they've put out for Record Store Day, which is just unbelievable. They've had Miles Showell remaster this at Abbey Road before we get a remaster of Wish. In terms of, like, catalog mismanagement, that's stunning. But there's really no pretext or context by which Smith can be proud of Wild Mood Swings when you look at it. His lapses as a songwriter during this period are undeniable. With all the turmoil going on in the Cure's camp, he just, he should not have been making an album at this time. He did it for the wrong reasons. And what's worse, up to this point, you've written one of the best Cure songs of all time, In End. It's called End. It's the last song on Wish. It's all about knocking the band on the head, knocking Robert Smith the persona on the head, rejecting celebrity, rejecting excess. And you go out and you tour this record, you play your biggest shows ever, you make a big tour film, two different live albums, one sort of like for the fans with the classics, and then the more traditional career-spanning set and show to kind of show what you've got to a new audience, which is just growing all the time because of the success of Friday I'm In Love. And more and more people hearing, do you know how many millions of people never heard Just Like Heaven until they heard Wish. This was such an opportunity to go out on a high note. They go on this tour, everything's going great in terms of ticket sales, they're selling out everywhere, multiple nights in massive arenas, but the band's a mess. And Smith is personally totally out of control. Even Simon loses the plot. Afterwards, everyone quits. And this is another thing Smith always downplays in interviews. Everyone was going through their stuff, you know, I knew Paul was leaving, Boris wanted to do different things, shrug. You know, the reality, Smith had alienated his entire band through monstrous arrogance and pretty cavalier drug abuse. And if Robert Smith is the cure, like in air quotes, why are the two albums that are essentially Robert Smith's solo releases, The Top and Wild Mood Swings, by far the worst things The Cure ever did? To me, the top is defensible on three principal grounds. One, Smith's only in his mid-twenties, and when he writes it, he's just started to get his first sort of flush with fame, with the dream singles, with Let's Go to Bed, The Walk, and The Love Cats. But Smith comes away from the success of the dream singles and Top of the Pops with a crisis of authenticity, of sort of identity, right, as a pop star. And so he hides out in Susie and the Banshees, and then he starts plotting a serious record, a return to form for The Cure, you know, the band that made pornography. And even though the top is ethno 
Eurocentric and sort of tawdry and shallow with the Middle Eastern flourishes and melodies it co-opts. I don't indict Smith for playing around with this stuff at 24, 25 years old. This is like little kid daydream stuff. He's fantasizing. He's creating all these, you know, vistas, imaginary places in his head. And there's a naivete there that I'm completely at home with. But 10 years later, Smith's 35, 36 years old, one of the biggest rock stars ever in the world. And this kind of like unserious self-indulgence is totally inexcusable at this point. The second thing is the top is not the product of excess or largesse. In 84, Smith had no money. He's on a retainer from Fiction Records from Chris Perry, and they were running the band on a shoestring budget still. You know, they just barely got their first hits. It's not time to start buying houses. Uh, and lastly, the top is economic. In all respects, the top is very economic. Just like the albums to that point, it's 10 songs, it's barely 40 minutes long, and like a third of that is Wailing Wall and the title track, The Top. It was recorded over just a couple of sessions. Look at the liner notes on the top. There are eight people listed in the credits for The Top, including the five musicians who play on it. Wild Mood Swings, there are over 40 people listed in the credits for this album, 40. 10 different producers delivered mixes for the 14 tracks that comprise this record with the idea that it would function as some sort of kaleidoscopic greatest hits. You know, I mean, the title completely gives the lie to how Robert is looking to excuse the fact that this record does not hang together. Wild mood swings, you know, expect it to be all over the place, guys. I don't care if it's all over the place. You've been all over the place before. Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me is one of the best albums ever recorded. And this is dog shit. <laughs> Wild Mood Swings was recorded throughout 1995. Started at Hermere, then they went to St. Catherine's Court. Jane Seymour's mansion. This is where The Cure lived for about five years. And it turned into this big playground where Smith could indulge his every whim. And it's not just Wild Mood Swings. I mean, if you want to understand how big a disaster this record was, the number one referendum on a band of this status fucking it up is releasing a greatest hits record. And that's exactly what they did after Wild Mood Swings. I mean, he spent a year going from party to party, throwing together stand-up recording sessions, you know, in this huge manse, you have free reign, different players, day to day, week to week, different producers. Steve Lyons is kind of like the ringmaster of this, but you've got mixers coming in from all over the place. Adrian Sherwood did a mix for this, and barely anything is written. There are maybe five songs that were complete going into the process of starting Wild Mood Swings as an album. This is the musical equivalent of Patty's Wigwam. Smith makes the joke at various points, he would forget the drummer's name. They had three drummers running three different sessions before they even find Jason Cooper, who becomes The Cure's permanent drummer. They had Mark Price from All About Eve. He was a shoo-in to join the band, but I, he heard the demo for Delamitri's role to me and made the right call joining that band. <laughs> Time to roll to me. Roll to me. 
they had Ron Austin from The God Machine, and they almost stole the drummer from this German Cure tribute band called Pink Turns Blue. I'm kind of kidding. Their first record, If Two Worlds Kiss, is okay. By the time The Cure puts this famous ad in Melody Maker, which reads, in total, famous band needs drummer, no metalheads. They'd already recorded five or six songs. They'd been fully tracked with Mark Price and these two other guys. Before dealing with the songs themselves, the most important lesson anyone could learn from The Cure's Wild Mood Swings is that you cannot have different drummers on an album. If you don't have that seat filled, don't go into the studio. Use a drum machine until you get that nailed down. The real thing that no one talks about and that isn't understood well enough is how badly going from different drummers destroys the flow of this record. Look at the transition from Mint Car into Jupiter Crash. Mint Car is Mark Price, very compact, right shoulder forward kind of player, furious snare, hi-hat, manic, frantic fills. They're not all over the place, but they definitely jump the beat, right? So, and even for me, hearing this, when I heard Mint Car on the radio, I was completely struck by this. It was really jarring. It's a trademark of the Cure sound. Go back to Lowell, right? Lowell's inability to play with this level of fluidity and, and technical, you know, execution, right? Even through Andy Anderson, locked down, airtight, tempo control machine, the tank, right? And then you get Boris Williams. Boris Williams is very pointed and musical in his approach to patterns and even just fills. Listen to a song like Push. There's no drum fills in Cure songs. There are drum parts similar to how there are guitar licks. It's a specific thing, but it's very much part of the Cure sound that people don't understand. A drum fill is exactly that, right? It's a show-off flourish. It's gonna signal the transition into the chorus or the next measure. And so on that first single, I'm thinking, well, this isn't the Cure, and like Robert Smith's not even trying. You know, I, in the last podcast on Wish, I called out that doing the Unstuck was like way too over the top for my liking, but it's still a good song. It's way too long. But, um, Min Car is far worse than that. First of all, it's a totally dashed off rewrite of Friday I'm in Love, their last hit. It's full of phony wonder and sky gazing and, and put on theatrical dreaminess. It's just too childish. You go from Mint Car to Jupiter Crash, which again is also a rewrite, this time sort of of Trust, which is one of my least favorite Cure songs. And if you think the lyrics on Mint Car are chintzy, Holy God, Jupiter crashes like a fucking book report. To this day, I cannot fathom how Smith let this song out and actually loves this song and was showing it off before they had even recorded all of Wild Mood Swings at festival shows. He thought Jupiter Crash was one of the best things he's ever written. It's like writing about the great storm of 1987. He, he's never written anything like ripped from the headlines that is just so obvious and pedestrian. Like imagine if Catch was about Haley's Comet. <laughs> was that it? Was that the Jupiter show? It kinda wasn't quite what I'd hoped for, you know. Pulling away, she stands up so around her the night turns. Around her the night turns. 
more than any of that, you're going from Mark Price to Jason Cooper on the drums, and it is just unbelievable how it derails the continuity of the album. Even for people who aren't experienced musicians and studio players, Jason comes from like a kind of swing, back on the beat style. He floats a lot. He likes to come in and out and hit on the beat, and it gives it a lot of dynamics. And that's great. That can work wonderfully. It worked really well on much of Blood Flowers. But here, it sounds like a different band. It, it sounds so brutally lethargic in contrast to Mint Car. That transition is another fundamental problem throughout the record. And this is one that Smith is completely open about. The sequencing on this album is appallingly bad. While Mood Swings is more or less built out of three different batches of songs with three completely different intentions. When Smith first starts getting things together after the Wish Tour, right? 93, 94, he only has a handful of ideas. He goes into the studio with Boris Williams for the last time and they work up Burn. And the sister song, which is Want, also dates clearly from this window. Jupiter Crash and Mint Car were finished and then Smith wrote Numb, which was this really bizarre, pretty juvenile response to Kurt Cobain's suicide. Like, I guess one rock star to another, there's some empathy there. But like Smith had never even met this guy. They had nothing in common. You know, no offense, but he was never the global cultural touchstone that Kirk Cobain was. The lyrics to Numb read like a 12-year-old kid's poetry. It's honestly shocking to think that Numb is coming from the author of some of the most like spectral, haunting wordplay in the history of pop music. This guy wrote the same deep water as you. And, and not only that, he also wrote literate, arch, pastiches, like how beautiful you are. These are subtle, indirect, dolorous, evocative pop songs. Almost nobody was better at this than this guy for a while. But you put the lyrics to Wild Mood Swings up against anything else Smith has written to this point, it is a crushingly sad exercise. Cause he's in love with a drunk makes him stops him What was going on with The Cure as an entity is death by a thousand cuts ever since the end of the Wish Tour when they break up. Even Simon had quit. I mean, he just quit again for the eighth or ninth time. But on the Wish Tour, Simon dealt with a terrible spiral of self-destruction. I mean, it was politely reported as pleurisy, but I mean, he was so fucking bad, he had to be replaced by Roberto Suave on the entire European leg of the Wish Tour. Then Smith goes into the studio to start working on the film, show, and the two live albums sort of all at the same time. While he's doing that in 93, Lowell Tolhurst announces he's taking Smith and Fiction Records to the courts over the Cure name, back royalties, you know, the usual rock star shit. Lowell Tolhurst is very upfront in his memoir, Cured, The Tale of Two Imaginary Boys, about how deeply he regrets being caught up in this, this typical alcoholic trap, really, which is pride. I mean, he sues Robert out of bitterness and rage at his own inability to control the alcoholism that had been worsening since 1986. But the root cause of those feelings, and listen, Lowell should have addressed this. I'm not making an excuse. He shouldn't have watered everything over with booze. But what happened in 1986 is that everyone in The Cure was compelled to sign a contract stating that they weren't a member of The Cure, they were an employee of Smith Music Limited. And that is something a lot of people, even diehard fans, don't know. Robert Smith took the throne in 1986. He subordinated everyone that was ever in The Cure. From that moment on, you know, it ate away at Lowell. In addition to all his own personal failings and insecurities, he did the deal. 
The reality behind that is there's a ruthless careerism to Robert Smith. He's got this clownish, vague persona, you know, lies in interviews, is so silly. It's kind of smoke and mirrors. You don't get to be this kind of famous unless in some way you're comfortable with using people or, or comfortably disposing of people who've served their present purpose, right? That don't fit with the thing you want to become or pretend to be. I talked about this in the first one of these I did. Uh, which is a technical disaster, my apologies, the podcast about three imaginary boys and Smith feeling uncomfortable with how well Michael Dempsey knew him and how well Michael Dempsey could see that what Robert Smith wanted to do next with 17 seconds had some pretension to it. It's a truism. You know, fame of this magnitude, it's a sort of Damocles scenario. Smith has never shied from reminding his bandmates at various times where the power truly lies in this band. Chris Perry was reaching out to Lowell throughout this entire process, you know, pleading with him, don't do this. You can still stop this. Don't go to law. But Lowell couldn't see it. And it cost Lowell Tolhurst a million pounds. The UK courts garnished royalties that he was getting already at whatever rate he signed in 86 for over a decade to recoup a million pounds. Right after Lowell files this suit, before it actually gets into the courts, Smith goes ahead with one of the strangest concerts The Cure ever performed. Finsbury Park, 1993. The Cure appear as a four-piece. Robert, Perry, Simon, and Boris. This is Boris Williams' last concert with The Cure. And they opened the show with Shiver and Shake. They rarely played this after the Kiss Me Tour, and it was clearly two fingers right up to Lowell. On the whole, this set is one of the rawest and loosest, uh, certainly by Cure standards, in their history. It's totally without a net, and frankly, it's full of mistakes, huge mistakes. They didn't play a very long set, you know, again, by their standards, probably about an hour and a half, but they did go for it, and it was out of frustration. It was out of Smith's rage that the Cure was now potentially ending in a way that he didn't control, that Lowell was fucking with him in like a Shakespearean sense, right? And he also had a contractual obligation to do this gig. This gig was called Great expectations. So on top of the lawsuit and the breakup of the cure, 93 to 95, Robert's spending all his time partying with BBC media celebrities and campaigning for XFM. Americans probably don't know this or understand it. The Cure launched a national radio station. They effectively bankrolled XFM with Chris Perry. This was his passion project to start a new alternative radio station outside the control of the BBC. A lot of Robert Smith's time and energy and even his output as a musician during this window is dedicated to helping XFM get its license and get its profile up. When they first started the sessions for Wild Mood Swings, one of the first things they did was a cover of Bowie's Young Americans, which eventually surfaces on a promotional XFM. FM compilation. That 
That revealed a lot about Robert Smith's headspace for many of the songs on this album. All that go mad, up-tempo stuff, this is pure Bowie because this is the figure Robert Smith is looking to, to figure out how can I do what he did? How can I retain my relevance here in the mid-1990s? It's a downtime, you know? We just did the album, we just did the biggest tour we've ever done, so let's just quickly get a couple of things out here to keep the attention up. Smith goes off and he does kind of like a drum machine, basically a bedroom loop song of Jimi Hendrix's Purple Haze for a tribute album to Jimi Hendrix called Stone Free. This is like April, May of 1993. What he's doing here is trying to repeat the success of Close to Me, the Close to Me remix. But I actually love this. I think there's nothing to it. It's a silly song. It's just a verse, chorus, verse thing. It never really goes anywhere. There's an edit of it that's like five and a half minutes long, which is absolutely absurd. Like this is a pure three and a half minute ditty. It doesn't have any chart potential. It's just a curio. And this is where the luck comes in. Hollywood's greenlit a feature film adaptation of The Crow, one of the most successful graphic novels of all time, right? This is an avatar for the growing popularity of, of goth in America. He's aware of this stuff. And also, it's not lost on him that most of these graphic novels, like The Sandman, you know, The Crow, the movie, Edward Scissorhands, the main character in all of this stuff is Robert Smith. This guy's an icon, and he is reflected in the art of the upcoming generation. Smith and Boris Williams go into the studio and do Burn. And the Crow soundtrack becomes part of this wave of hip soundtracks where the movie business and the music business are collaborating. The soundtrack thing was just a hugely successful move. It ran for like a good five years in the 90s. And right here with The Crow, The Cure are right on the back of Wish and Friday I'm in Love and their headline marketing. They are the anchor over Nine Inch Nails and even Stone Temple Pilots who were blown up for The Crow soundtrack. It, it's a neat retransmission translation of that pornography, you know, heavy on the toms move. But the lyrics are air light. There's nothing really here. It's a legit Cure song. They never played it live. But when they did, 2013 it was, they finally played Burn Live, something like that. Uh, obviously the fans went crazy because just like Wish, there were tons of people who first heard The Cure on the Crow soundtrack. And their whole relationship with The Cure, you know, evolved out of that. Apart from these two songs, Smith essentially takes a full year off music, during which time Nirvana and grunge become the only things that matter to American kids, and Britpop fucking explodes. April 1994, Oasis released Supersonic, and Blur put out Park Life. 
and Robert Smith turns 35. He's seeing both the American and English music scenes have completely revitalized themselves around new youth idols, new attitudes, and he's got to figure out how to navigate this or if he cares to. It's one of those classic things. Every time an interviewer asks Robert Smith about what he's going to do on the next record, what inspired you to make album X, he always says the same thing. Nick Drake's Five Leaves Left. But he's never made an album that sounds anything like Nick Drake's Five Leaves Left. During the run-up to Wild Mood Swings, though, he almost makes that record because of the success of The Cure's MTV Unplugged and other artists' success with the format. This is something Perry Bemont is really interested in. He thinks it's time to go in that direction heavy. So similar to the first batch of songs Smith is sketching, which he tapped into a little bit with Boris, those sort of call back to Wish and the classic Cure sound, there's also this other clutch of acoustic string-enhanced pieces, right? Trying to capitalize on this acoustic trend. The first glimpse of this on the album is This Is A Lie, which Robert says is predominantly inspired by work he was doing with Perry Bemont. I don't know if he's trying to throw him under the bus on that because this is a fucking Renaissance Fair Maypole dancing joke. Why each of us must choose I've never understood One special friend One true love each of us must lose everyone else in the world. However, and more importantly, from the start of the album with Want, on This Is A Lie, you're also starting to hear that adult Robert Smith voice come in. It's the biggest transformation. It's where, you know, old school fans, this is the dividing line after which Robert Smith becomes this kind of cavorting, theatrical, self-parodic clown. He abandons or he can't muster the emotional vulnerability and the whimsy that he made his name on for this melodramatic arch distance, you know, this performative remove. But as far as the acoustic clutch of songs, Bear is of a piece with Jupiter Crash leaning into that swinging Jason Cooper drum pattern, but it's for eight minutes of just aimless, unstructured jamming, painted over with pointless, whinnying string arrangements. Bear is like this giant, swollen, thunderhead cloud in search of a landscape to give you a complete picture. And the reason it's so rough is I just don't think you could have even fixed it. I don't care if you cut it in half. There's no there there, unlike what's really the tragedy of the commons on this album, Treasure. In a different arrangement, without the totally incongruous, insistent strings, and just the horrible mix, throwing in these completely over-accented room sounds, Treasure could have been a timeless Cure classic. It's got a beautiful collapse into this chorus drone. It's one of the best songs on the record, bar the production. It's The majority of the album 
is Smith's go-mad pop star face. He's kicking against the fact that he's on the wrong side of his 30s, and his behavior was consistently out of control all throughout this period. During the Wish Tour, sure, but again, here. He takes a year off, he's sort of convalescing and, and taking it easy, but as soon as the gears start turning on the album cycle and the court case is resolved, and he's doing all the promo work for XFM, he's totally back at the bottom of a bottle. It's outrageous, the stories about the shit he was getting up to at this time. He got shit-faced before interviewing David Bowie, and the first thing he says to him was, can we agree that you haven't done anything good since Ashes to Ashes? Smith's behavior was consistently out of control, and it got worse because he was so much more insecure. I mean, it's a gross thing to talk about people's physiques, but the reality is Robert Smith had printed millions of dollars off how gorgeous he was. He was one of the biggest pinups in the world. He's not George Michael, but in so many ways, Smith is the other side of that coin, right? To the completely inverse audience, Robert Smith was a huge sex symbol. And there are stakes with that. He didn't luck into the Bowie, elegant, aging into it, Jeremy Irons thing. But he also wouldn't stop drinking and partying. And by the time you're 36, 37, that takes a toll fast. And the only reason I even mention it is because just about every review of this album, and especially the tour in support of it, calls this out. This guy looks like shit. I mean, he wasn't even shaving he had given up so badly. He was going out there with awful black stubble. He needed a new image, and he knew this was coming. Smith totally knew this was coming, and he absolutely understood the Cure weren't cool anymore. They were looked at as an old band in that they were considered irrelevant. But this is what gets his back up, because he's rich. He doesn't give a shit what you think. The guy, to this point, had already sold almost 20 million albums. XFM is about to launch. He's got a piece of XFM. This is going to lock up his financial security forever. Like, in as much as he knows he's going to go out and just get the shit kicked out of him in the papers, he's up for it, because who are these people? Some pay packet executive? A 23-year-old kid writing bullshit for Q Magazine or whatever? These people are economically and socially beneath him. And Smith does take that cheap sanctuary here. On Wish, he'd already started to do this. Robert Smith had already started singing about the stresses and strain of being rich and famous. But we accepted it because The Cure had gone from a relatively underground alternative status. They were certainly the top of that heap from maybe even 1986, but they weren't frontline daytime MTV famous until Wish. And so there's a transition there. There is a marked change in the scope the scale and the reception and celebration of what The Cure and Smith do. And so fans allowed for him to kind of complain about this with Wish, about the band getting too big, about I don't want to become you too. It was part of the narrative, but by wild mood swings, Smith is too old to be occupying this role. He's old enough to know, if you don't want to be a pop star anymore, stop being one. I, I mean, as I said before, I think he was old enough to know he'd written the perfect ending to this band in End. He should have spent the rest of the 90s just marveling at how he'd managed to call his own shot in such a monumental manner. That would be an incomparable arc if he'd just binned it after End. I honestly think it's a lasting tragedy that he couldn't see the long tail value of that idea of, of disappearing resting on, you know, well-earned laurels and becoming a more distant, mysterious, regal figure, right? Because then he can reemerge without any expectation or judgment later on. If the cure had stayed gone <laughs> after Wish, and then they came back with blood flowers and didn't try to do the album art themselves on fucking Microsoft Paint, uh, <laughs> blood flowers could have been a monumentally successful record but they were clawing their way back on that record from the mortifaction of this piece of shit. 
you just can't make art about how hard it is to be famous and how phony and empty celebrity culture is. This is the most tone-deaf, repellent thing any musician can do. You open the record with want, which is just a pale restatement of open thematically and then burn musically. Then you follow it up with Club America. People complain about the salsa shit and the rumba, the 13th, and gone. They're both awful, right? Because it's a 36-year-old guy trying to conjure up the sort of sexy, insouciant swagger he had, you know, when he was 26. Club America is the worst song The Cure has ever recorded. It's just a rote run through baggy bullshit with this deadpan Bowie baritone over it. It's it's so cheap. It's such a cheap, shallow shot at fame in air quotes, like as if he's handled that more admirably than anyone else. And, and like as bad as Club America is, it's neck and neck with Strange Attraction. The, I mean, Strange Attraction is a fucking Phil Collins song, straight up. It is the most middle-of-the-road, AOR, cornball, major-label, fucking meaningless slog of jaunty, big-chorus bullshit. Smith had to build everything back up from zero, yet he was in a position where anything he did to start the cure back up was going to turn into a 128 world tour. Interviews with every magazine on the planet, this album could not support the level of attention he knew the cure were going to get and that they'd earned. There was nobody there, or he maybe he wasn't listening to anybody who might have said, you don't have it. Steve Lyon, you know, he was basically managing everything for this whole shit show. He should have told him right to his face, start over. Because this album's a bunch of fucking demos with no commercial appeal at all. It's a demo any record label would have rejected outright, and it destroyed The Cure. The American leg of the Wild Mood Swings tour is a peerless catastrophe. This band sold out 35,000-seat arenas multiple nights in a row on the Wish Tour. On the Wild Mood Swings Tour, multiple dates were canceled for lack of interest. Canceled due to poor ticket sales. They were playing 18,000-seat arenas, 4,000 people show up. Half empty, half empty, over and over again, the whole tour. It was such a rude awakening. There's so many uncharacteristic things that happen on this tour. Fans have relayed to each other over the years. There's a show where Robert punches Simon. There's a show he walks off stage during an encore. He just doesn't give a fuck at all. That's our first encore number. Little snippets for the bikes over in Florida, he goes into this huge, bizarre rant. You know the feeling when you've got like something that you know really well, something that you love a lot, and you something that's just like really friendly, and you're talking about something and you find it really hard to explain what you want to say. Like, even though you know you're saying the right words, like it doesn't click, and the other person just doesn't see the same pitch in your head. This is us on stage tonight with what's going on. So. This is just like one minute of us just doing in. It's really at my tempo, right? You know, and some of this is, like I said, Smith knew this band could not carry a concert tour. It's a new band, they're not battle-tested, and worse, the songs are all threadbare. There's nothing holding these songs together. They're not polished, they were all cobbled together in the studio. And Jason Cooper was not ready to play stadiums at fucking all. 
Cooper's in the worst position of like any drummer I can imagine. Whatever your feelings on him, he's a kid compared to the rest of the band. He's learning on like a broken roller coaster that's totally out of control. I have a lot of sympathy for him, but I have none for Smith and how he allowed all these factors to just totally rubbish the Cure's reputation. On the Substack entry for this podcast, I'm going to link an article. It's like the quickest way to understand how awkward and embarrassing everything around Wild Mood Swings was. In June 1996, Barbara Ellen, she's a storied English writer, journalist, she filed one of the most infamous car crash features in the history of music journalism in Vox. She was so anxious about this interview that she got drunk and she went after Robert Smith, said he was a control freak, a manipulator. At one point, Simon's like, what are you even talking about? Like, you're just making shit. What are you doing? She's calling him a coward. At one point, she goes after his marriage and says the new album is misogynistic. I mean, maybe on that score, she has a point, right? I mean, a sizable percentage of Smith's songwriting, a lot of it deals with the notions of infidelity, temptation, and lust. And Ellen was definitely not wrong that there is way too much Bacchanalia, way too many songs about Bacchanalia on Wild Mood Swings. The only other song along with Treasure that I really have any time for on this record is Smith's least favorite song, Return. Because for me, it's the only place where the Bacchanalia and the excess is paired with a believable vocal performance from Robert Smith. I Unlike everything else on this record, Return is fun. It's fun in an honest way, not in the forced, go-mad way Mint Car was. And unlike everything else on the record, it's not overthought. It's not second-guessed. It's a totally disposable little romp. It delivers the energy and the exuberance that's missing on the rest of this record. I think it's really obvious, not just to fans. If you were to go through and invest the time to critically evaluate this record, Return really stands out. He probably downed a few bottles of wine and just belted it. But that's what he needed to do. So tell me what is going on. I was sure that I'd already gone. All you say is we're all spinning. It's really not just true. But that doesn't seem to help me figure out how I can be a prisoner. The rest of this is so tentative and brittle that none of it hangs together. The fan response immediately after the album cycle had finished is that all the B-sides were 10 times better than anything on the album. Even if Wild Mood Swings is the first time you ever heard The Cure and you heard these five B-sides alongside the album tracks, you would be dumbstruck that anyone would pick the songs they did over the B-sides. It was at the point where they were a little bit overpraised by fans. It was a pastime for fans making CDRs of Wild Mood Swings, swapping out the songs they couldn't stand, like the 13th or Gone or whatever, with Home and Ocean and Adonais and especially the ambient mix of This Is A Lie. Even today, you know, on social media, you'll see Cure fans wringing their hands over what a great album this could have been if they just picked the right songs and the B-side should have been. No, they're okay. But Robert Smith was done. He was writing from a headspace that was totally dishonest. I went a little heavy on that message in the Wish podcast, maybe. But Smith has copped to the fact that he had started going through the motions on Wish on a number of those songs. And the problem with Wild Mood Swings is that he's going through the motions on all of them. He's totally lost the drive and commitment to the lyrics, and he couldn't or didn't bother to write good licks anymore. Go listen to Fascination Street. There's like six killer riffs in that song alone. You could make three songs out of Fascination Street. There is so much good shit going on. 
by the time you get to Wild Mood Swings, the first song, Want, it's two fucking notes for five minutes. A lot of people talk about trap, because trap is supposed to be this big raging, you know, return to form, getting his back up. And whether it's about Lowell or someone else in his orbit, I have no idea. But it's just endless moaning, and it's not backed up by strong enough music at all. I had said that I didn't think Cut was strong enough, you know, lyrically or thematically to support its length. But it had some of the best instrumental performances in The Cure's history. Poral, Robert, Boris, everyone just goes off on Cut, and they get away with Cut because of it. Trap fails to build any of that supporting sort of infrastructure. And in that way, not to try to boil Wild Mood Swing's failure down to one song, but Trap is very much like Want, a wish retread. And if you think of it in those terms, this is just like vamping on a half-written two-chord demo. It's completely beneath the historical reputation of The Cure and Robert Smith as a songwriter. Like everything else on Wild Mood Swings, you're putting lipstick on a pig. See? 